Solinsky said as much. You know, it's called the march through the institution. So any any institution is fair game, and they're just gonna uh, try to take over. And not, not that these people necessarily care about classical music; they really just simply want to see it fall. Mm-hmm. And it's that it's like what we saw with bringing down statues. It's this sense of revenge, revenge against Christopher Columbus for coming over here in the first place, revenge against you name the founding father mm-hmm. for you know for not being good by today's standards um it's that sense of revenge it's not they don't put up a statue of anything else in this place and they certainly don't put up anything beautiful they mm-hmm. it's just this this um hateful act against something beautiful so there's very much a war on beauty going on everyone and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment and I'm joined by Emma Waters, the coalition's manager. Is this the first time you've been on since your name changed? No, second time. Second time you've been on since your name changed. Okay. But it still uh, sounds weird to say. Yeah, so. <laughs> you'll eventually get used to it. Uh, we've got a fantastic episode for you guys today, something a little bit different. Uh, there are many policy wonks and nerds that come on the show. There are politicians, there are think tankers. Today we have a trumpet player. Uh, uh, Andrew Balio uh, is the principal trumpet of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. He's played uh, in in uh, you know the Philharmonic uh, in Israel, uh, the uh, Orchestra Sinfonia del Estado de Mexico. I mean, he's 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 played uh, classical music at an extremely high level all over the world for decades now. He's also the president and co-founder of something called the Future Symphony Institute, which he co-founded uh, with uh, Roger Scruton of all people. And so uh, we brought him on because we were sort of fascinated by uh, what has happened in the institutional life of American orchestras and symphonies. Uh, it's reflective of what's happened in a lot of institutions in American life that is collective suicide. And so uh, we thought we'd bring you something something interesting and unique. Uh, I know that many of you fancy fancy yourselves as, as appreciators of high culture. And so uh, we thought that this could uh, provide some value. And if you haven't ever been uh, to a symphony or orchestra, uh, Andy makes a fantastic case for why you should do so. What did you think of all that, Emma? I thought it was an incredible episode. Uh, theater kids might be ruining things <laughs> in the White House, but it turns out that classical musicians might save us after all. Um, so there is certainly a lot of hope, but it brings a lot of perspective. Um, the essence of of the arts um, from architecture to classical music and so on is that it draws your attention off of yourself um, to something higher than yourself, something that is truly beautiful and something that is great um, and gives you a vision that you just can't replicate beyond that. And I think that was the crux of a lot of his message. Um, um, that he presented in terms of today, in terms of our American history, in a way that was incredibly fascinating. Yeah, um, it's it's rare that you meet someone who. I mean, again, to to be the principal trumpeter at the Baltimore Symphony is just I mean, you you have to be operating at a level that is global in its scope. I mean, it's entirely possible that he is one of the top 100 trumpet players in the entire world. Like that is the level at which you have to operate in order to do that. So uh, a very interesting, a very unique voice, uh, someone who comes to many of the same political conclusions that we do, uh, I think, but uh, for, for, from, from, a vast amount of experience from across the world. So uh, we hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, give it a listen. Uh, we promise you won't be disappointed. And so we'll go now to Andy Balio. Mr. Balio, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, you have potentially one of the most unique backgrounds of any of our guests. We have a lot of political policy nerds on this show, but but you come from an entirely different world, the world, world of arts and culture. Please tell us a little bit about uh, what it is that you do and, and how you got there. Oh, well, I'm a classical trumpeter. I play in symphony orchestras. On occasion, I'm a soloist in you know, far-flung places. Um, I was raised in Wisconsin, and I just simply, the only reason why I play classical music is because we had a fantastic music program in our middle school, and I was, you know, subsequently made it into high school, and then we had another fantastic music, music program there. And so when I was growing up, all the kids played music. It just was the thing that everyone did. Even the small farm communities had absolutely completely fully funded bands full of the most, you know, the best instruments. And it was just a thing that was done. It was just embedded in the culture in Wisconsin. So I have, I have Wisconsin to thank for the fact that I was able to 
uh, succeed as a musician. It's just um, they didn't particularly focus on me, my my you know my abilities. I was just one of a lot of kids in a in a bunch of really large bands, and uh, and I came up through the youth orchestra there and went on to. Um, you know, the elite music, the, the, the thing what's even dorkier than a band camp is orchestra camp. <laughs> so I went to orchestra camp and that's, so that's, you know, it's, it's even nerdier. And, uh, so I came up through there and then I you know, went to New England Conservatory in Boston, which, uh, had a, uh, joint program with Harvard University. And so I played in the Harvard University Orchestra. Nonetheless, I, I still dropped out after a year. Um, of all of that, and I moved into a moved into an ashram that was built by uh, um, conservative Hindus who had hmm. bought this uh, seminary from the Jesuits because the Jesuits didn't need they had a very large facility they didn't need it anymore, and so I did that for four years, and then I returned to classical music and uh, sort of got myself back into shape by going to Mexico. I played in an orchestra run by. Basically, a, a drug dealer, <laughs> and uh, so there was a lot of money. It paid very well, especially mm -hmm. by Mexico standards. And then I went on to the Israel Philharmonic, and mm -hmm. got uh, spent nearly a decade in the Israel Philharmonic with Zubin Mehta. And I, I got a real, I got a real education. I mentioned those things because I got such an education from not only being raised in Wisconsin, but um, living in this Hindu monastery. And living in Mexico, mm -hmm. seeing how classical music was so important to that culture, they had their own way of doing it, and they embraced all of it. And they just it was just a certain joie de vivre that the Mexicans had towards all forms of music, but particularly classical music. You know, and that's not really a story that we talk about much. That mm -hmm. that South America and Central America has huge classical music tradition, and they they really thrive in it. And then, of course, uh, the what would classical music be without the Jewish culture? Who've, some of the greatest musicians ever have been uh, have been Jews, and in Israel we had this incredibly fertile um, place where so many amazing musicians lived, and so I was extremely fortunate to to um, sort of round out my my education by playing in Israel for all those years. And we were on tour about three months of the year, playing all around the world. Um, so I've um, I, I think those are the things that are the most formative, the most those are my most formative chapters of getting to see the world, seeing how classical music exists in all these different cultures. It's been adopted by virtually every country in the world, and uh, it's it, it's they don't they don't see it as cultural appropriation, nor do they see it as um, something foreign to them. They see it as is is just um, as a as an intrinsic good. I saw so many cultures that see classical music as an intrinsic good and something that they that it reflected their values, and um, and that's why classical music is actually um, in its in a form of renaissance right now. It's really at a zenith if you're talking about um, the number of people engaged with it and um, how many countries are doing it at an extremely high level. Mm -hmm. So I was able to you know, um, witness all of that during my lifetime. And then lastly, I ended up in the Baltimore Symphony. I was very fortunate that they, um, someone at the Baltimore Symphony, it was uh, their conductor, Yuri Temerkanov, who um, noticed that I was uh, the, the lone uh, goy in the Israel Philharmonic, and that, <laughs> that I might be open to living in the U.S. So I got an invitation to play in the Baltimore Symphony, mm -hmm. where I've lived for the last 20 years. And uh um, and that's been yet another big learning for me to be part of an American orchestra um, and to see how America has um, dealt with its own classical music scene. And, um, and as, we, as, as you'll hear later, it's, uh, they actually sort of, America's sort of turned against one of its own great success stories. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to uh, your professional music work, you've uh, been sort of philanthropically involved in uh, in in the nonprofit space and creating organizations. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah. So as as a result of my experiences playing around the world and thinking about um, simply the demand for classical music, I should actually back up to let you know that from the very beginning of studying classical music, I was being told by my elders and certainly everyone else and around me, classical music is dying <laughs> over and over. It's dying. It's not even going to be there by the time you're an adult. It's, it's just, it's dying. It's, it's a dinosaur. 
and everyone hates dinosaurs and or it's a museum everyone hates museums and so this has just been this constant rhetoric that that's um really imbued the uh the arts certainly in the united states and to a certain degree in europe mm-hmm. and um I've been waiting for classical music to die, and it, it, it simply isn't dying. It's actually growing in many ways. However, in certain certain parts of society, it certainly has withered. It's been de- certainly many, many children have been deprived of the incredible experiences of being able to have classical music in their lives and to really develop, really to flourish. You know, I th- and I think probably the biggest issue we're looking at with classical music is it's a, it's a sign of human flourishing. And that's, I think that is what's changed. But it's it's really, it's not that it's gone away. It's shifted to different populations. So, so uh, tell me, what is classical music? Because I, I, I think that uh, there is a sort of broad uh, sort of cultural definition of classical music, which is, oh, that music that the mm-hmm. olds played, it's with violins and trumpets. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's probably no, no voice to it. I mean, what, what exactly do we mean when we're talking about classical music? Because... There is a such thing, I guess, as modern classical music being created. Mm-hmm. What, what what defines that term? Is it anachronistic? Right. I mean, so the thing, so your your listeners will be very familiar with this idea of postmodernism, mm-hmm. modernism, postmodernism, which they may have, mm-hmm. you know, studied. Have a certain sense of that. Well, there is, there is a, a music that sort of latched itself on to classical music, which we call modernist or postmodernist music, which was, it grew out of it, but it actually went off on its own tangent. And so right now you have um, rather hostile roommates, you know, they're living under the same roof, but they're um, duking it out, they're sort of fighting over the kitchen and the bathroom and in, in whose place, you know, who really should reign eminently in this whole um, in this li- this whole living situation, mm-hmm. I'm not entirely convinced that they can live peaceably together. Mm-hmm. Um, there are there are two types of just like there's two types of conservatism, small C and, and capital C. There's uh, capital C classical music and lowercase classical music. Capital C classical music is the music that was written in the classical period, Haydn, Mozart, um, early Beethoven, which was the first time all of this music that had been happening. In, for centuries through the church and then this um we say more vernacular music that was more uh more entertainment music and little op- operas and operettas these types of things that were just happening without being self-consciously this a thing that we call classical music it all started to become uh it started to become much more codified and formalized uh, and we generally uh, trace that all back to papa haydn franz joseph haydn Made he um, developed this thing called the symphony orchestra, which because of um, he had a lot of funds at his disposal from Esterhazy um, Royal House. He, um, you know, he, what we know is an orchestra with strings and some trumpets and drums and some winds. Um, that that was sort of the the you know the soil in which um, Beethoven really came in and uh, made what we call the, the, the Romantic Symphony Orchestra today. And of course, there was, there was Mozart who was wedged between there, who at Mozart um, was not an innovator. He actually took the pre-existing um, classical language, this ordered music that was according to this these uh, well-known forms. And he stayed within these boundaries for the most part. The thing is, he just did it so impeccably and so beautifully and um, just with the utmost you know, vision without necessarily needing to take on new, you know, take on, you know, what we call innovations. That was for Beethoven. Who just um, went in every every direction and was just uh, a colossal genius in everything. Every, it's a, it's astonishing that one man did so much, and um, so that so the classical music with a lowercase c is everything that came after that, including it, which is this. It's just sort of a we would classical music is, is the the music that is written down. And played in an inter- uh, based on interpretations and um, is ordered music. It's um, where there's virtually virtually no improvisation in it. Uh, although in Mozart's time there was a great deal of improvisation, Baroque music has a great deal of improvisation. It started to shift away from the improvisation and more into simply this idea of 
the formal piece. This is a piece mm -hmm. of music, and we, we call this, we have this, you know, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5, for example, is a piece of music, and it stayed static as a, as a record, and we always, we were all referring to the same, more or less the same edition all the time. And I know musicologists may take some issue with my definition, but that, I think that's very much a Lehman's, um, you know, version of what we can call classical music. Mm -hmm. um, and where 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 does classical music i mean i i assume that some of these are terms of arts but i mean how do people who are fans of classical music reconcile what modern music has become from everything from rap and pop to mm -hmm. even more um you know uh, technically complicated work you know say this the scores that hans zimmer writes and so on what 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 is what does your world think of that quote unquote music as do you even see it as music Right. Well, classical musicians have standards by which they measure uh, music, what, what makes it great music and what makes it lesser music. And the whole point of classical music is always is, is, is this constant discernment of what is great and what is greater and what is lesser. There's enormous amounts of what we call classical music that has been utterly discarded. You're never going to hear it again because it just wasn't as good as something else. So it's really driven by this, um, by taste and quality and discernment. It's the, it's, you know, it's the same reason NBA fans love the 1990s Chicago Bulls. And it was just this time that these astonishing players came together and they discerned them as, as better than some other teams at the same time who may have, you know, another time became the, you know, preeminent uh, NBA team. And so that happens with classical music. We have what we call the best orchestra in the world. And then it, and, you know, and maybe it went through a low ebb and another orchestra emerged as the best, what we call, what some people would call the best orchestra. And then the other, so we, so it's, it's this, you have compositions and then you have super high level performances. And the whole thing is predicated on excellence. You cannot separate excellence in classical music. There's virtually no demand for classical music unless it's the absolute top level. That's just a basic principle of classical music marketing and should we say winning in classical music it's not like restaurants if you want to make a lot of money in restaurants you open up mcdonald's and things like that but but if you want to lose money in restaurants open up a really high-end restaurant you probably go out of business in six months whereas uh classical music is all the demand is at the top end and that's um it's kind of brutal in that sense uh, a lot of people you know, are really, they're distressed by that. Now, certainly the amateur world of classical music is thriving. Um, I had the great fortune of coaching the World Doctors Orchestra here in here in, uh, in Bethesda um, some years ago. So that would have, it's a, uh, all these doctors from around the world get together and they rent out a, a major concert hall and they, they'll um, rehearse, you know, some major work, like in this case, it was Mahler's Second Symphony, and they just go to town and then they have a great weekend and then they go back to their clinics and hospitals. Mm -hmm. And so amateurism is very, very important in classical music. It's the, and it re, it's really what drives the demand, the, the enthusiasm. It's the hobbyist, the people who have, you know, the, you know, the people who just happen to have a Bosendorfer piano at home and, uh, and they, uh, that that that's a, it's a, this, so classical music is as a phenomenon is this th synthesis between fans and professionals and their 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 friendships and relationships and the support of one another. Mm -hmm. um, so is is core to the experience um, the way that most music used to be consumed, which was there's a performer in front of you and you're mm -hmm. watching it and it's ephemeral. There's no recording. I mean, do you think that the advent of, uh, you know, media that music can be recorded onto fundamentally changed the nature of music? It did. It, it really did because it was, um, it, it, it allowed it to be captured kind of like um, Grateful Dead bootleg tapes. <laughs> you know, like you have these, you know, the 1978, um, you know, Chicago, you know, S summer festival performance, you know, that everyone remembered as being, you know, in which, and I should you know, bring them up, they improvise a lot. The Grateful Dead was just constantly improvised. So they made sure that no two concerts were remotely the same. Whereas mm -hmm. in classical music, we're, we're playing the same music, um, 
in the, you know, the whole weekend, but we're playing it slightly differently each time by its own nature. And some people say, oh, the Saturday night concert was the best one. I heard the Sunday. It wasn't quite as good as the Saturday. And so that's the kind of thing that that this discernment really, uh, really uh, um, energizes the classical music enthusiast. And, uh, you know, you, had, you were speaking about uh, what makes classical music classical as opposed to other kinds of music. There's great pop music out there. And to us musicians, we're musicians are very omnivorous and, and music lovers are omnivorous. You, we, we know this from iTunes downloads. Well, on, on one iPod, there'll be um, all of this pop music. There'll be heavy metal, there'll be jazz, and then there'll be, you know, operas. Mm -hmm. And you say, was the same person's listening to all the, well, yeah, they say, people say, well, I would, when I'm, you know, when I'm at the gym, I'm listening to one thing. And when I'm, you know, driving, I'm listening, you know, to the whole, you know, whole ring cycle or something like that. So mm -hmm. it's, that's one big learning is that there are not these big walls between listeners necessarily. Mm -hmm. Good music is good music. And, and I say good music to us musicians, we have, we have, um, we have standards and we have we have uh, things that we look for that makes music. So the enemy in music is boring. Mm -hmm. So when we criticize some types of really popular music, to us it's just boring. If that's mm -hmm. why that's our problem with it. It's not a ideological problem with it, or it's just it's just quite often it just it's simple. It's too simple. Mm -hmm. It's 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 so predictable. It just keeps looping the same mm -hmm. bad idea over and over. <laughs> so it's a little bit like you know having a you know four year old younger brother who just keeps you know doing something annoying over and you tell him to stop. You know that. So to a you know, to a classical music, we where we hear music. First of all, we can't not hear music. Mm -hmm. it, everywhere we go, our ears go to what we're hearing, and um, you know. So those are. You know, that's how we're that's how we experience mm -hmm. music which is probably the way other people experience music but we're we just do it for a living mm -hmm. so um unfortunately they a lot of the hopes that classical music could suddenly we could be scaled up and try to have you know big widespread commercial success um we're not or they didn't pan out because commercial music where I call industrialized music which is you know made for scaling up is actually um, by its own nature dumbed down because they want to not offend uh, people so they're looking for they're looking for the product that will make the most amount of money and is they're going to it's sort of almost like earworms that kind of that annoying tune that gets stuck in your ear they're looking for that they're kind of engineering the music as such and um and most, you know, that comes out of there's a whole pop music industry, and they're very, you know, I they're very musically calculating. They're not trying to, um, you know, they're not trying to deepen your life. They're trying to just hook you. Whereas classical music, it's 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 metaphysical music. It's meant to deal with to meant to embody the big questions. And and one of the major assumptions of classical music is that there's a transcendental realm, and that classical music was always music that had that in the background or the forefront. So much of it was sacred music, and the music that wasn't explicitly sacred music was still music that was that was meant to take you to some type of transcendental realm here and now in time and space, and that you your imagination would, for that time be taken to this um this very rich experience um you know this this uh this sense of something so beautiful transcendentally beautiful and um so that's a very very different goal and it's not you know it was, we call the spiritual the music that's music singing about singing about about god yeah. singing to mm -hmm. god but the music itself it, the tonality, the harmony, the uh, it's not designed necessarily in the same way classical music, which is meant to simply embody, even without words. The words are inside it. The, the, the words are meant to embody the thing itself that they're trying to describe. So it's a, in um, is class is music a, a language? Yes and no. Um, it's been debated by philosophers for a long time. It, in, in a sense. I, I, I'm willing to call it a language for describing a thing that language can't describe. Mm -hmm. And that's and I think that's what sets it apart. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing that um, um, in the culture wars, um, some people are very uncomfortable with the idea that 
with the idea that classical music is something not only set apart, but even on a pedestal. That's mm-hmm. something that we we hold as special or even to some people sacred. Mm-hmm. And and that's and that's where the problems begin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the story of the United States over the last and really the West more broadly over the last 50 years has been collective institutional suicide across every domain of life. Mm-hmm. Um, the arts uh, have certainly been um, no uh, exception to that. Paint a picture for us. What what is the apex of the American music cultural scene, um, presumably sometime in the twentieth century, and and how far has the decline been? How bad are things today? Well, I like to use the word apex because for classical music as an art form, what the incredible story of classical music in America was was uh, one of the apexes, mm-hmm. in that um, America was built as a as an imitation of old Europe. Mm-hmm. We we um, we replicated a lot of those institutions, the university, um, some of the these other institutions, um, and the, and we looked to old Europe. And you know, said, well, they have all these amazing orchestras and opera houses, and we should too. So the these very visionary titans of industry, like you know Andrew Carnegie and the Vanderbilts and whatnot, they um, put made huge investments in um, building concert halls and um, trying to plant in every major city these institutions. You know, saying that our city is a real city too. You know, and you know, and they would, and you look at the architecture, the architecture of the late 1800s through the mid 20th century is all gorgeous, beautiful, neoclassical, or traditional, and any any number of these forms that you found in Europe, they would imitate in their um, in their public buildings and um, the other, you know, the, the, the cities were meant to be um, beautiful, and this this whole idea of beauty. Um, was something that we inherited from from Europe. That beauty had to be embodied in our environments. The way we, we we put a certain amount of land aside in every city for parks, mm-hmm. and that's sacred. You know that you know you're not going to make money on this plot of land. That's green space, and we 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 also play and we also recreate together. That's what makes us civilized. And um, so that's. I, I can't speak highly enough of how well we've done in America in, in bringing um, pianos into so many households and having piano lessons and um, and all and having bands and all of these um, large and small communities, particularly the small communities. What I love about America is our small communities is incredible. They, even if they didn't have much money, they'd build an Athenaeum or you know a public <laughs> library and you have the great books. My grandfather and uh, was raised in rural Indiana and um, in a one room schoolhouse, and it's astonishing what they studied in a one room schoolhouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and the kids that you know had to go out and chop wood to keep the stove going so they didn't freeze, and yet they got better educations than so many of our kids nowadays. He he went on to work on the railroad for fifty years on the Wabash Railroad, and he would just and that was around the time uh, when um, the radio had just started. So what did they, they needed content? Just like they needed good content on the radio, so they started brought thanks to Texaco they started broadcasting Metropolitan Opera. Broadcast. So my grandfather already in, you know, nineteen twenties was was listening to every single um, uh, met met broadcast of the opera and writing down who the singers were and look going to the library and learning all the the libretti and um this, and whatnot. And he's a railroad guy, mm-hmm. and that was just that was just his hobby, mm-hmm. and that that sort of that was the thing that Americans aspired to, which was this high culture mm-hmm. and and likewise one of American values were such that high culture should be available to everyone mm-hmm. it shouldn't and, and that's always been part of America that was always the plan not to hoard it necessarily but to to spread it far and wide and that's what you know Texaco did um that that evil oil company mm-hmm. um, <laughs> they, they they wanted to make you know to bring to uh, you know make that possible for all of us so that so we have some so America ended up having some of the greatest orchestras in the world in fact Gustav Mahler was the came to America and was the conductor of the New York Philharmonic 
um, very early on. And, you know, a lot of his, you know, his symphonies were played by the New York Philharmonic. And he had that sound in his ear, even though he was from Vienna. He um, heard this American sound, which is a very optimistic, very powerful and very um, technically proficient kind of orchestra. Mm -hmm. And so that's that was the next step of classical music when um, America got involved. Mm -hmm. And we have our own classical music. And a lot of it was inspired by um, by the Negro spirituals and the Native American music, as as we heard, in, you know, Dvorak picked up on that in the 1800s already. and. And we have we have our own, we have uh, jazz music, which is a true indigenous high um, high art music that um, that we have. So we have all these different streams coming together to influence um, our classical. And it went back to Europe. So so many of the Europeans were saying, "What is going on over in the New World?" <laughs> and so we we've uh, the American chapter has been a, a huge success story, and so many of uh, so many incredibly brilliant people in our population. Um, you know, let's just say Alan Greenspan, for example, he, he was at Juilliard, studied at Juilliard and all sorts of great people who started out in music. Their, their minds were being fertilized by classical music and they went out, maybe went on to do other things. But, you know, we have, um, you know, America, America at its best had, had really great classical music as a cornerstone of learning. So our, it was not education for most of the time has not been a transactional thing where you're going to we're going to you know, teach you just enough so that you can function as you know, work at Walmart. No, we want you to we, we, the sky's the limit for you. We're going to put all this before you. We're going to give you the big pictures and the, and the techniques and the reasoning power to reason. We're not going to tell you what to think, but we're going to tell you um, there's, there's this you know, old method that we inherited from the Greeks on how to think and it's infused with morality. Mm -hmm. um, from the from the Judeo-Christian world, and all the these the synthesis, um, it, it it held beauty as a as a very high value, beauty itself, and there's and there are standards of beauty, the standards of beauty for how we dress, and standards of beauty for how we you know, what sort of homes we live in, and uh, you know great music was like that, and and our pop music, we gave the world pop music. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just it's it's staggering how much a amazing class, you know, great popular music of all genres from jazz, and you name the genre that we originated and the world thanks us for that. Well, embedded in all of those styles were, you know, came, were the under, were the, was the, the ingredients of classical music. It's, it's that style of harmony that we got from, we could go back to Bach or you could go back earlier, but that's not arbitrary. Other cultures don't have that because they did, they don't have the same relationship with harmony that we did. And that goes all back to Pythagoras, but I won't diverge <laughs> to back to Pythagoras. That's one of the interesting things talking about your grandfather working on a railroad, which I think today we would call something along the lines of a working class job mm -hmm. um, and listening to these great works of art. And then you switch to today and you look at our factory workers and fast food workers and people on any like side of the job spectrum um, and they are not listening to classical music. And if they are, they might be listening to Beethoven's, you know, top three hits on iTunes, but it's not the same immersion into the art itself. Um, and you were also talking about this idea of having an understanding of morality and of beauty and of value that says this is the highest life and we should aspire to this. Whereas today, the pushback is there is no greater life. You should live the life that you desire. Um, and we've taken away any sort of moral standard. Um, so is we're, so today seems just radically different from the values that your grandfather would have held to. So when you're thinking about classical music and even a renaissance of classical music, how and what is that even going to look like in a culture that doesn't value those same things? Yes. Well, you know, as you know, you know things pendulums swing back and forth. And I think we're at a point where we're realizing what we've lost. I think your generation and young, younger ones are realizing they kind of got ripped off. They got stiff, they got shortchanged, that the things that I got to enjoy and, and, um, and growing up and just, just as a matter of just living um, have been denied. And so I think there's, I'm not going to say everyone, but a significant, you know, slice of society probably coming from the parents um wanting these things being put back into the lives 
of children. And then so it, it, I was reminded by what you're saying of Russell Kirk's term, the moral imagination. And that's what classical music really develops. It, 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 it's a, sort of an education for the heart and soul. Mm -hmm. it, it shows us not only how to feel, but what to feel. Because because we discover feelings in great music that takes us to places we probably couldn't have gotten to on our own, but we discover them. And one thing that is will be forever immeasurable will be all the great, brilliant insights that happened while people were listening to classical music. I'll never know the the, the what scientists had a breakthrough while they were listening to a concert. Um, it just it takes people. It's a synthesis of all ideas and takes us beyond our own minds. It takes it, the mind becomes very quieted in great music and classical music. Um, it's not to say it doesn't happen in other kinds of music, but we musicians know that that the classical music is the the most highly developed one and it's not that the, these these other ones have a time and place because we classical musicians we we're listening to all sorts of pop music you know heavy metal no names mentioned and you know, things <laughs> like that but but we there's a time and place for it you know mm -hmm. and, you know and we we're energized by it and we enjoyed or we're we're simply amused by it because there's a humor to that music just um and uh this um this turning point which I'm anticipating is actually going to be is we're we're being we're, what's happening now is we're we're having reflected back to us mm. what we've lost or at least left behind by other cultures because we're having this incredible um, cross fertilization with the Asian um, continent, far Asian uh, and uh, Indian subcontinent, and they still have the values that we used to have. So the, one of the 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 ones who've really inherited and are the keepers of the flame of classical music are the Asians right now. It's just, it's just amazing. Why do you think that is? Values. It comes down to Confucian values mm -hmm. that overlap with our with the, our, our Judeo-Christian you know Western values mm -hmm. that we've um, rejected. We've but they still retain them. There's a certain small c conservatism mm -hmm. to um, to uh, Far East Asians. Mm -hmm. What we're waiting for is for India to catch the same um, love of Western classical because India also has this um, this incredible conservatism and and same these these values of of, of old things valuing traditions valuing um, character development. Um, Knowing that there is that there is a God looking and judging us, and, mm -hmm. and that there's that that morality is not something we get to bend, but something we have to obey. Mm -hmm. So these this is um, that's for me. That's the other shoe that I'm waiting to. to I'm hoping within my lifetime, India will because we're talking 1.2 billion people, and, and that could that's a lot of potential um, Beethovens that could come out of India. And what's missing in India are concert halls. So one of the things that my, you know, one of my great interests is in, is in seeing um, some you know great philanthropy, you know, happening in in India where they just build a network of concert halls all around India, where so that Western you know musicians can at least go on tour. Mm -hmm. I've, I've I went on tour to India a few times with uh, Zubin Mehta and Israel Philharmonic, and we we had to play in cricket stadiums, and, <laughs> and there were some auditoriums left over from the British. But for the most part, there was nowhere to play. Really? Yeah. We and uh, yeah, we did just there's nowhere for us to go. Yeah. And because um, part of it is that they there was a, a pretty firm resistance to, um, you know, to. Uh, it was a cultural imperialism or you know, mm -hmm. colonialism. They really wanted the, they wanted the British out, and they wanted all of these other um, things out for a good long time. But I think now is uh, could be a good time because I what we do know is uh, you know a good sign a bellwether of this is that the Steinway Piano Fact uh, Company they opened up a showroom in in Mumbai. Oh, very so good. So we, we know that they're they're planning on selling pianos there. So with with piano lessons come people with uh, who have these. Uh, classical you know classical interests yeah um what has the decline looked like in the west practically speaking and on what time horizon in 50 years uh what how what did it look like sort of i mean you were abroad but mm -hmm. kind of contemporaneously watching 
yeah. as a culture that once prioritized and valued this great form of art no longer does. It, it started in the public schools because the public schools were the great leveling um, thing that we had going in the US mm -hmm. that, that the public school, there was a time when the public schools were the best schools in the world. And, I'll, and I'm it's just, it's amazing. And I actually keep on my, my phone here. I downloaded on Kindle um, on a reader. You know, you remember the, the readers from you know, back then, they didn't, kids didn't have tons of books. So they would, they would give every, each, each year, they'd just give each kid a, a thick book. And that was all the reading they were going to do. So mm -hmm. this is a 1928 reader from the state of California. Oh my goodness. There's some hard stuff in there. This is for <laughs> third graders. Yeah. Third graders. And it was, you know, you know, Longfellow and Shakespeare and all the stuff that they wanted the kids to learn to read. So already they were, not only could they read, you know, they, they understood that the point of reading was not to learn to read, is to read. Mm -hmm. And and now we've completely lost that plot. We have, you know, back in Baltimore, we had all of our high school, nobody had, nobody achieved um, English language proficiency one year. Wow. And, and that's, that's how far we've fallen. And of course, um, in all this failure going on in our public schools, the first thing that the teachers said, well, we need more money. We better cut the arts, cut the fat. We make them make the kids focus only on these very transactional things. So it's so life in school is so bleak for kids now because they don't all they do is just over and over to being trying to just pass the next the next test and they're not there's no real human flourishing mm -hmm. going on no real creativity if they're learning arts they're learning they're not learning the discipline of the arts they're mm -hmm. just learning here to throw some paint on a on a, on some paper whistle into a recorder for a couple of yeah hours. exactly instead of whereas the whereas asia they totally get it the point is to imitate that it's mm -hmm. it's this tradition of imitation no you don't get to be you don't get to originate or express yet Mm -hmm. You know, it's not about self-expression because that is the first thing that has to be, um, you know, um, I guess it, it's uh, it's a fallacy that, mm -hmm. that art is about self-expression. It's about expressing something higher than ourselves mm -hmm. and that we have to learn the technique while we're, while we're learning to play music. And we may get a, you know, in that process, we will feel like we're expressing something, but it's not necessarily our own original ideas. It's it's that, isn't that great? I just played this little Mozart sonata and, or I, I you know, um, you know, I got from here to here in one semester. And that's, that, you know, if, if, if there's any arts left in some of these schools, it's very shallow mm -hmm. arts. Um, it's amazing to me how well youngsters can play or do art if they're given the right instruction. Mm -hmm. You know, one, one of the things that just blows my mind is watching these uh, videos on YouTube of of Japanese middle schoolers playing band in the band, and, and they just astonishingly good. Mm -hmm. And they it's they were it was the methodology, mm -hmm. and that um, that that's what we've we've lost. And so then, without having um, having that background just as a matter of the point is not to produce more musicians. The point is to, have, to live a really great life mm -hmm. and to under, not only understand the English language at a very high level, but to, and to understand other languages in the course of, of um, going through public school, but it's also having a, a really rich relationship with music and, and having this, you know, this type of higher learning going on, mm -hmm. you know, the higher function learning is what we were, we always understood was the point to get to that, you know, mm -hmm. the higher math, these, these things, to get to the fun stuff. And um, that, that really is the crisis. And um, that, that's really, that's really the huge gap that's, that I, I see in those, my 50 years mm -hmm. of, of observing this, but it, be, it doesn't mean it can't come back. We have plenty of people who still remember how it goes. But uh, again, uh, Asia is showing us what we used to do so well, and they they will they will tell us verbatim. Um, and I'm not I'm not speaking just about Asians Asians in Asia, but the um, you know the Asian diaspora, you know, the expats and all these other both in the U.S. and in Europe. And they still say to us, "What are you guys doing? What's wrong with you? You know, don't you? Why are you being so 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 critical of your own culture? Being yeah. we were that's why we're here. We love it. Yeah. We love your um, we love your high art. We love we think your 
old art and your old music is the best that's ever been created and that's why we we learn it and enjoy it mm -hmm. um but we don't like your values nowadays but, <laughs> uh, but we will take yeah. these other things so um we've the west has given the rest of the world these in incredible templates mm -hmm. um to to imitate and now it's for us to to re be reminded by our um by our friends mm -hmm. in other places um about what what we were doing right before how much of that uh, concept that we especially put on children in public schools that, oh, art is for self-expression is a convenient sort of facade to put up uh, because the schools are uh, incapable of and in unwilling to objectively assess merit? Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, it, it, it all stems, it goes back to the Enlightenment idea that we're all born, born as, as perfect little innocent beings. Mm -hmm as we are and we're corrupted by society whereas um I th the three of us would agree that it's actually the, quite the opposite that we're um, nasty little barbarians <laughs> in, in, unless we're shaped by higher ideas and um good good parenting and a good you know you know, good, uh, good schooling to um, develop ourselves, so mm -hmm. that life is a path of self-development, and that classical music is one of is one is a very unique, mm -hmm. entirely in the history of the world. Classical music is entirely unique among world musics, mm -hmm. and it, it it offers a pathway of self-development, and um, you know, it it um, it enhances uh, civic life and and people's sense of community when they mm -hmm. come together to hear a classical concert mm -hmm. or to play it together in, as amateurs or, or just you know to uh, um, you know to uh, you know, get a get a child engaged mm -hmm. in something that they something that's bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. So what what are what are the perversions of modern orchestras in the United States and and these cultural institutions what well, what at, at the highest levels you know at the New York Philharmonic or the Kennedy Center what what practically has gone wrong what's life like in those places these days well we have an embarrassment of riches with, <laughs> with orchestras and that that was it actually came as a result of, of two forces you had these I, I spoke of these visionary industrialists with you know with more money than God, who wanted to seed the United States with great institutions. You know, they founded these incredible museums and bought the greatest art from old Europe and started symphony orchestras. Um, but they, they, these people were not particularly friendly um, to uh, workers. Mm -hmm. So they, they just had it. It was, they were always trying to get the same labor for, for cheaper. So what we all, so mm -hmm. our, the, the musicians union actually ended up being this real force for good for we, um, rather than the musician being this, um, provider of this transactional product, you know, saying we're, we're, we're sound makers, you know, we said we are the product itself and we, we, we are highly educated. We are, we're craftsmen who do, who make these, make this music at the highest imaginable level and we deserve to be paid more. Mm -hmm. So what started happening, these, you have this, this face off between the, the boards of these nonprofit orchestras and these labor unions pushing for higher wages, well, living wages. They wanted living wages initially. And then they started saying, well, you can pay us more. And, you know, and what started happening is people started making the decision to not be an engineer or not be a doctor and to go into classical music because mm -hmm. it was actually kind of a good job. Mm -hmm. That's really great for not only orchestras, but great for society. And so what we're, we've gotten to a point where um, in American society, the musician is can can be rewarded very well and even respected in the same way the classical musician is regarded in Germany. In Germany, music, classical musicians are very highly respected. They're almost on par with doctors, mm -hmm. and, they're, and they're they're giving honorific titles and things like that. So it's um, it has you know has to do with the the cachet of the musician now is is quite a bit higher. Mm -hmm. Although, but, but that's just in certain segments of you know the West. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that I'm making any great claims for us, but that that's part of the success story that there was that the labor union in our case actually helped sustain the whole thing mm -hmm. because we we were saying we wanted the, we wanted the art form not to be you know held as entertainment, but that it was um, you know in a sense a living museum mm -hmm. of not only great music but great musicians. So the musician became 
um, part of the equation that the musician was esteemed. So when you go to a baseball game, you don't go just to watch balls, you know, up in the air or, you know, or just trying to get the score up. It, it was, it was, it was this fascination with the players themselves. You know, their stories or you're, you're a fan of that particular um, pitcher or whatnot. That's your team. Well, now mm-hmm. we, people, Americans feel about their orchestra the way they also feel about their baseball team. <laughs> you know, I'm not, certainly not the first one to make that analogy, but it really, there's a very, very strong athletic component to classical music. It's because we're, we really are, a type of athlete mm-hmm. and um that it's that, that part of that american spirit of loving our sports that gets people excited about us and likewise in, in europe and in asia they um they love us classical musicians in the way that they revere their their sports stars they want to see us do um things that are to them unbelievable they want mm-hmm. they want to hear the unbelievable performance of of something and so it, it it exists in that sphere of human flourishing, something done at its mm-hmm. highest level. The same that we, you know, people who never watch sports will still watch the Olympics, you know, every four years mm-hmm. because yeah. it's it, it just holy smokes! How did that person do that? Mm-hmm. How did they do that? Well, there's that 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 can happen when classical music is done at the Olympic level, mm-hmm. and that's where classical music exists. It's a it's an Olympic event in this sense. So, what do you do um, when classical music? Uh, when musicians, and you see this a lot with players in sports too, when they all of a sudden start using the art form as a way to shine a light back on themselves or on different beliefs that they have mm-hmm. or issues that they want to elevate, therefore taking away from the larger beauty of the event and reducing it to something very specific. So yeah, how do you respond to that and sort of recapture the transcendental nature of classical music when a lot of people are taking it for their own pet projects or, or different beliefs that they want to be made public? Yes. Well, I, I will take the ball and run with it. This is what you're just for your listeners what's happening everything you saw that happened in higher ed at the university level which is the hijacking of humanities and now believe it or not they're even hijacking the sciences for as as, um in a sense as a platform to simply enact um political um political projects to um promote you know uh, ideology um leftist counterculturalist um ideology um, it's the exact same playbook as being applied to classical music. And it's it's almost done in a it's not it's, at times it's not even self-conscious. It's just done because that's all they know how to do. They were indoctrinated when they were in college, basically given marching orders. You know, your job is to go out and and just overthrow, just bring down, you know, bring down classical music. Classical music has to be destroyed in order to make it. Um, make it atone for its sins. It it has to be punished. It's just to we have to knock it off its pedestal, and um, what in you just you, you can't believe the things that are being done in on, you know in the in the classical music world. It's just it's it's just so ridiculous. And a lot of people get it. A lot of people. I mean, people just. You know, uh, you know the audience members are just aghast and like, what, what are you doing to me? I just wanted to hear a concert and why are you turning this into? Because people come to concerts, kind of to escape the world. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they they want just some peace. They they got enough of um, the, the the political news cycle and the, you know on the, on TV, and they they're not listening looking for that. But that is in, in short what's happening to classical music. It's becoming a there are some there are many attempts to turn it into a political platform for for this and it's not going to work that's the problem if if we were simply going to make money doing that and do well i'd say well eh, it's not my taste but at least we're surviving but no it, it backfires people are running away the same reason we see universe people not going to the universities and people fleeing the public school system and fleeing and you know, just quitting their jobs, not wanting to be lectured, you know, at work, you know, being, you know, being uh, canceled for, you know, for this, that, and the other thing. It's all the same games. The problem is that classical music as a as an art form is is fragile. I mean, we it's an expensive art form, and if, if we start, if we lose even a little bit of our audience, you know, that could be it for us. That so we we are seeing. Um, there are orchestras that close their doors. There are opera houses that have clo- had to close their doors, and they um, they keep running leftward, thinking that they can 
do mimic the successes of of um the political left and they they just just take that same playbook and run it let it run its course through yeah. the arts but it, it just doesn't work because art doesn't work that way yeah. it it doesn't because if anything it's, it becomes very cynical people just roll their eyes and say oh here we go again this is the same thing i heard at work and i, I just can't bear it here and and i there's there's a the art, the classical music used to be this wonderful place where the right and left could at least agree on certain things, which was the intrinsic good of classical music. It's just good for the sake of itself. It, not because it raises kids' test scores when they do it, or not because it, um, not not because when you you put a concert hall somewhere it, it spreads wealth you know for five miles and, right but that is uh, a kind of like social engineering that that some people will advocate for right it's yeah. oh we'll stick a stick an orchestra in an urban ghetto and suddenly yeah. that'll improve social indicators I mean, what do you make of that phenomenon it seems yeah yeah generally there, there's a, a basic uh thing we see with building concert halls is they take the the most undesirable land and um Say we'll build a hall, but we're going to give you. We're going to put you in the in the part of town where nobody else wants to be. So you, so you're, you'll transform you know, all these people's lives just by existing there, mm-hmm. and, and and it doesn't work that way. What's the, what's the silliest <laughs> example of that trying to be done? <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, some some of these examples abound. Um, I hate, hate, hate to name names, but the problem is it really backfires because people don't want to. Generally, these are in places where people don't want to attend concerts, mm-hmm. and so it scares off the audience. Mm-hmm. And then the people who Did live someone there, try to create a concert hall in Compton at some point, or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. It, it, it's always that um, demand that you go that that it's almost like we were being um, asked to atone for our, our sin of mm-hmm. of being wonderful to um, to the, we the, rather than being having being an intrinsic good someone you know the, the demand is put on us okay but what do you actually do do you have to do this instrumental good mm-hmm. no, no pun intended that mm-hmm. you have to, you have to go off and cause something else to happen you have to cure you have to solve the issue of poverty mm-hmm. or um these things and it's it, it's not that it, it's it's this higher learning and higher function that we want to um, nurture among children from the very beginning, and that that's where you know classical music has a role. I mean, it, it, hearts are open. They um, we've we've seen in Venezuela a tremendous um, you know, a tremendous program for many many you know hundreds of thousands of children that came up through their El Sistema. These are the poorest children, and they were given instruments, and they were given a a real focus in their lives, and they. Um, their lives were greatly enhanced, and they went on to do great things. And of course, they mm-hmm. produced many amazing musicians mm-hmm. out of that program. So that was, you know, but it was still music for the sake of itself. It was, it wasn't um, meant to replace, you know, anything else. It was just, it was, it was just this idea that great music would nurture people to become great souls, mm-hmm. and um, so we. You know the this uh, the the culture wars are trying to work. It's you know uh, Solalinsky said as much. You know it's called the march through the institution. So what any any institution is fair game, and they're just gonna uh, try to take over. And um, really, it, it was it's not that they want not, not that these people necessarily care about classical music. They, they really just simply want to see it fall. Mm-hmm. And it's that it's like what we saw with bringing down statues. It's this sense of revenge, revenge against Christopher Columbus for coming over here in the first place. Revenge against you name the founding father mm-hmm. for you know for not being good by today's standards. Um, it's that sense of revenge. It's not they don't put up a statue of anything else in this place, and they certainly don't put up anything beautiful. They mm-hmm. it's just this, this um, you know this you know this very base instinct of of you know of, of enacting um, you know this uh, you know this very you know sort of hateful um, act against something beautiful. So there's very much a war on beauty going on. It's been we see it in architectural modernism. And part of it had to a lot to do with the bleakness and the utter depression after World War II. I mean, it was it truly was profoundly um traumatizing for millions of people. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, I think we we see a lot of the the leaving behind of our our best practices after World War II, either in urban planning and architecture, or even in our education systems. Certainly, I, I get it. We said we have to do things differently going forward, but. Ultimately, the, the project of modernism, which you know came on the heels of, of industrialism, was a dehumanizing thing, and I think that's what what's happening with um, you know leftist politics is it's dehumanizing um, our lives and de- certainly de- trying to dehumanize classical music and you know in, in my world. Mr. Valia, for someone who hasn't uh, really ever interacted much with classical music, either playing it themselves or listening to it, they've only listened to kind of top 100 hits. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the an entry ramp to get into it? How would you you know recommend if, if there was one thing they could listen to or one process they could follow to begin to understand and enjoy the world that you inhabit? Well, even within classical, there are many different strains and genre. Mm-hmm. That um, that some people just latch on to, and I'm often surprised. Some people just love Baroque music up to Mozart, and that's it. They don't want to hear anything later than that. There are a lot of listeners like that. Early music as a thing has blown up. It's 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 been it's become so popular. And playing early you know, the oldest music on original instruments, playing on actual you know 400 year old trumpets and drums with you know, rawhide and. Um, you know, all sorts of, you know, these things that instruments that are just not played anymore, mm-hmm. but it cre- they create these, you know, unique ancient sounds and, you know, trying to reimagine what it might must have been like 400 years ago. And there's a whole fascination with that. And there's a whole different sound world. You can hear the difference, mm-hmm. they even tune differently. And, um, and then there's, you know, some people are, are romantics. They love um, romantic music. They love Chopin. They love Beethoven piano sonatas. They love... Um, you know, they just love lush, expressive music in that sense. And other people, the music really for them, they like they just like loud stuff. Rite of Spring, Shostakovich. They they're really into these kinds of um, displays of raw power through through the orchestra. So um, the the great thing about algorithms is if you go on Spotify or you know Pandora, you're once if if you know a few things that you really like and you. You put that on your playlist it's going to start pushing other things towards you mm-hmm. and that you're and it'll start you know it, it figures out what your tastes are mm-hmm. um so i mean for me my favorite composer is bach mm-hmm. i just I love bach so much and um it it just is is really a great is it probably it's a composer i play the least because mm-hmm. he didn't write for symphony orchestra mm-hmm. but it's is i get a great comfort from bach and uh um but it's there's just so much out there, but it, the thing about classical music is it, it's an it's an analog experience, and that's mm-hmm. what we're seeing. We're seeing a real return of analog things. Um, I don't know if rotary dial phones are going to come back, but <laughs> but it's certainly uh, people who people are really learning to um, appreciate non-virtual, non-digital experiences, and classical music. While you can get you can get a lot of music onto your phone and uh, as, as MP3 files, these are very compressed files, and mm-hmm. it doesn't have it just doesn't exist well like that. So it, it really it's it's a live music more than any other kind of music. Classical music is a live music, mm-hmm. it's predicated on a lot an actual human being playing an actual acoustic instrument mm-hmm. in a room. That's designed to make sound very beautiful. So the room is a secondary, in, secondary instrument to the instrument that's being played. So it's this resonance, so that you're feeling the resonance on your body. It, it really is a, it's a very, um, it's a very tactile experience of, of experiencing classical music, and uh, um, that is. Uh, so the the entry level is to just buy a ticket and go to something. And uh, maybe go to these music conservatories are great because they they have so many free concerts and many of these conservatory students play at a very high level. So you really, you know, what can people expect? I mean, I feel like a lot of young listeners, they to Mm -hmm. them, it's like going to the symphony. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. I don't don't have coattails. I don't have a top hat. Oh, we don't either. (laughs) You know, we... Yeah, it, no, the symphony experience is already already very dressed down the same way offices are very dressed down nowadays. 
you know that you know people don't have to you know dress up particularly to go to the office, mm -hmm. particularly if you're the president. But mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but yeah, it's um, symphony orchestras don't really have much of a dress code anymore. I've seen all all manner of dress um, at uh, at symphony concerts. So the barrier is pretty low, and and we certainly encourage our listeners to check out um, what's available in their city. That there's mm -hmm. chances are there is something. Um, how can people follow your work and and keep up with mm -hmm. what you're doing and the organization that you run? Well, as a result of all my experiences and my desire to help make a difference, I decided to found a research institute called the Future Symphony Institute, which is at futuresymphony.org. And it's simply right now it's uh, we do projects. We'll do symposiums on concert halls or music in the sacred and things like that. But um, we read a, we have uh, lots and lots of articles on the philosophy of classical music. Thinking about thinking about thinking about classical music. How should we think <laughs> about it? How do we exist in society and and whatnot? And that's you know that's my big project. I'm trying to grow for the rest of my life. Um, trying to bring together. Um, founded with mind. Sir Roger Scruton. Yes, Roger, Sir Roger Scruton and uh, the architect Leon Creer um, were co-founders. They launched it with me. I was very lucky to have them, both of them helping with it. And I've met so many incredible people around the world who want to help and, um, and really want to see classical music thrive um, in everybody's lives. That's wonderful. Well, we hope that that people will take a look at that and and thank you for for bringing uh, a very different perspective to our show and 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 making the trek out here today. Thank you for coming. Oh, such a pleasure. I love talking to you guys. Told you guys that that would be very interesting. Uh, hopefully, you made it all the way to the end. We certainly enjoyed uh, having him out in the studio and uh, and having him travel to come see us a little bit. I mean, Maryland is basically another country at the end of the day. <laughs> it's like it's like sharing a border with Iraq. Um, I mean, I say that Washington D.C. is not much better. So, um, thank you to to Andy for coming and be sure to check out the work that he's doing at futuresymphony.org or is it Future Symphony Institute? Um, he said it a few minutes ago, so you can uh, check what he said. Uh, as always, please make sure to rate and review this podcast five stars. It helps us a lot uh, with that perfidious algorithm uh, to make sure that, that more people can listen to this. Uh, go subscribe on YouTube, on Rumble, on, on any platform where, where videos or podcasts are consumed. Chances are we are there. Uh, follow us on social media at ammomentorg on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, there you can usually find clips of this podcast. You can find everything else we have cooking at American Moment. Don't think there's any active applications for something open right now, but I'm sure uh, they will be arriving soon. Um, and listen to the backlog of this podcast. We're almost at, what, 60 episodes. There's plenty of content uh, to keep you satiated uh, if you have any long driving ahead of you or flights. And so thank you guys as always for listening, and we will see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Mm -hmm.